0: Welcome, this is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond.
1: Welcome to Sydney Ideas. This is the University of Sydney's Public Talks Program. My name is Fenella kernabone and I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas. Before we begin proceedings, I would firstly like to acknowledge and, and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all uh, meet and work and, and share ideas. Uh, wherever you are today and wherever you're joining us for our fantastic event, it's, it's wonderful to have your company. Uh, we are on Gadigal land. Uh, you know, pay my respects and acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation because it's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney's built. And of course, as we share our knowledge and our learning and our our teaching and our ideas, as well as our research practices in this university, um, we pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. It is great to have your company. A big conversation for you today. Big solutions on the nanoscale, from capturing uh, water in thin air to unlocking neural codes for cures. Some exciting talks uh, coming up for you today. Enough for me. It's now my great pleasure to Introduce and welcome Professor Benjamin Eggleton, who is the director of the University of Sydney Nano Institute. He is going to open tonight's event and introduce you to your MC, Alice Motion. Over to you, Ben. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks, Vanilla. Fantastic to be here with a great crowd on this uh, lovely humid evening um, in Sydney. I also want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm sitting in the Sydney Science Hub. Uh, on the main campus um, and very proud to be on lands that have been associated with that um, community for many thousands of years. Uh, It is great to be with you for this exciting event. I want to give some brief remarks and context uh, to set the scene and then hand over to uh, Alice, who will emcee uh, this event. I want to start by acknowledging Alice Motion's leadership, a fantastic colleague, pleasure to work with you, Alice. Uh, I want to acknowledge your leadership in, in putting this event together. I also want to thank Fenella, from Sydney Ideas for the partnership to work on this um, this evening. So let me give you some background to uh, this uh, conversation that we're having. Sydney Nano is one of the University of Sydney's flagship multidisciplinary institutes. We were established to bring together researchers from across the university to conduct transformative and translational research in nanoscience and nanotechnology. Now that's a bit of a mouthful. Let me try and unpack that statement. Simply speaking, transformative is a fancy word for paradigm shift. And I think you'll see tonight through the presentations that is indeed the philosophy. And translational means that these paradigm shifts um, are gonna change the world, they're gonna change your world. So hence the the title of the event is Big Solutions on the Nano Scale. So Sydney Nano deals with nanotechnology, which is the study of the structure and function of materials on the scale of nanometers which is one billionth of a metre roughly the size of about 10 atoms in a row. Now, it does sound pretty obtuse, but in fact, um, it's already part of our world. Now, Sydney is in the Sydney Nanoscience Hub, an amazing facility on the main campus that I'm sitting on, as I mentioned, built specifically for nanotechnology. It incorporates high-performance laboratory. I'm told some of the labs are, in fact, the most uh, represent the most expensive real estate in Sydney state-of-the-art clean rooms for fabricating nanostructures. We're very proud that we host the Microsoft-sponsored quantum computing project and much, much more. And our research is multidisciplinary, which you will see tonight exemplified through these absolutely breathtaking presentations. Now, normally this event would be held in the Messel Theater in the Nanoscience Hub. It would have been wonderful to get together with a crowd. We fill the room usually with 250 people we have a fantastic reception afterwards, um, a lovely event, and we hope and look forward to being able to host events like this in person very soon. So this evening, you're gonna hear from three rockstar scientists who have been leading three of Sydney Nano's Grand Challenge projects. These are indeed the flagship projects for Sydney Nano. The Grand Challenge projects, as the name suggests, aim to discover groundbreaking solutions to the world's greatest challenges that are of profound societal, economical, and scientific significance. I hope they give you a flavor of what we're doing at Sydney Nano. Um, and with that, I pass over to my wonderful colleague, Alice Motion, to MC the rest of the evening. Over to you, Alice.
0: Thanks so much, Ben. Um, We've got a real treat in store for you this evening. We've got an hour of spectacular science, some music and and some more, so much more. Um, And actually what Ben mentioned um, in his introduction is that we're going to be celebrating the work of three researchers leading grand challenges at the University of Sydney's Sydney Nano Institute, and they're going to be sharing with us what can happen when we zoom in and get technology and science to work on this seriously small scale. There is such fantastic opportunity to revolutionise areas such as medicine, health, communications, um, with Applications for things like the environment and also for security too, and we're going to hear from three absolutely fantastic researchers this evening: um, Dr. Shelley Wickham, uh, Professor Kiara Neto, and Professor Zdenka Kunchik. And uh, you're you're going to enjoy hearing from from each of our researchers, finding out about the different aspects of of nanoscience that's applicable to their grand challenges. And we're going to have an opportunity for questions from the audience at the end. So it gives me great pleasure to actually invite our first speaker. So I would invite Professor Zdenka Kunchik to um, come on, uh, come online with the camera and uh, microphone. Uh, Zdenka is a professor of physics, and she will now share some of the work from her research team who are delivering cures for neurological diseases by rethinking interventions in the nervous system. So Zdenka, please take it away.
3: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. Before I start, I'll just give you a bit of context around the research I'll be talking about. So I'm a physicist, and I'm strongly motivated by the potential scientific breakthroughs that can be made through interdisciplinary research. And this is where Sydney Nano comes in. It brings together researchers from across many discipline areas to work together on problems that can be solved with nanotechnology. This project, a nanobionic retina, is a prime example of this. It's a project involving neuroscience and medicine that was first brought to my attention through Sydney Nano, where I met Professor Greg Swanning, a biomedical engineer. Now, Greg has been working on developing a bionic eye to cure blindness in people with neurodegenerative disease. One of the challenges of this work is getting the biomedical device to communicate with surviving neurons in the retina using electrical signals. I'd been working on a separate nanotechnology device that produces neuromorphic, that is neuron-like electrical signals. So it became immediately obvious to us that we had a unique nanotechnology solution for making a bionic retina work. And now for the details. The ability to see is taken for granted by most of us, and sight is arguably our most valued sensory perception. So when sight is taken away by neurodegenerative disease, such as macular degeneration or retina pigmentosa, it has a profound effect on people's lives, debilitating their sense of independence. These diseases are age-related and affect around one in seven people over the age of 50. So chances are you or someone you know may be affected by neurodegenerative blindness. As we age, sight can be lost due to dysfunction in the eye's retina, which is an extension of our brain. As a physicist, I'm fascinated by the myriad of coordinated biophysical processes involved in our visual sensory system. Upon reaching the retina, light is converted into electrical signals by retinal photoreceptor cells. Other retinal neurons then encode these electrical signals and send them via the optic nerve to the visual cortex in the brain, where the signals are decoded to form images. When retinal neurons degenerate, it's possible to restore retinal retinal functionality with a retinal interface. This is a type of neurotechnology. Technology that uses bioelectronic devices to interface with neurons to stimulate them and restore function lost due to damage. Building a retinal interface to cure blindness is a challenging problem that many research groups around the world are working on. At Sydney, Professor Greg Swanning has developed a retinal interface that works by using a pair of camera enabled glasses, a mobile phone, and a small antenna to send signals to a microchip and electrodes implanted at the back of the retina. However, as with other similar retinal in- interfaces, the effectiveness of these so-called bionic eyes remains crude at best, limited by microelectronic device, uh, device use in the retinal interface. But at Sydney Nano, Greg and I have made an exciting breakthrough that could substantially improve the quality of vision produced by a retinal interface. We're combining neurotechnology with nanotechnology to develop a completely new kind of retinal interface, a neuromorphic chip that produces electrical signals that are more neuron-like than those produced by microchips used in existing neural interface devices. The neuromorphic signals can replace some of the signal loss due to damaged retinal neurons, but they can also enhance signals produced by the remaining functioning retinal neurons, which better recognize the neuromorphic signals. We discovered that neuromorphic electrical signals are readily produced by a particular type of nanotechnology, nanowire networks. These are electrical circuit networks of silver wires of about 10 nanometers in diameter, more than a thousand times thinner than a human hair. And just like human hair, they can grow very long. We aim to show that when these neuromorphic signals are transmitted back to the brain via the optic nerve, the visual cortex can reconstruct a better image. This is a potential game changer for retinal interface medical devices. It's the physical properties of nanowires that enables them to produce neuromorphic electrical signals. The nanowires and their interconnections resemble neurons and their synaptic connections. Just like neurons, nanowires are separated by a nanoscale gap across which information is transmitted. In response to electrical stimulation, neurons communicate with each other by transmitting neurotransmitter molecules across this synaptic gap. Similarly, electrical stimulation in nanowires drives migration of ions across their gap. In other words, the nanowire gaps represent synthetic synapses. We found that collectively, the nanowires respond to electrical stimulation in the same way as retinal neurons. This means that inorganic nanowires can communicate with retinal neurons. Okay. We're upgrading the existing retinal implant microchip to a neuromorphic nanowire network chip to realize the first nanobionic retina. Our neuromorphic chip is not only biocompatible, it's also green, made using our own in house process that has a much lower carbon footprint than conventional semiconductor chip manufacturing. Our vision is that a nanobionic retina will one day help people with neurodegenerative blindness see once again. And who knows, maybe with our nanotechnology, we might all upgrade to bionic vision in the future. And apologies to those in the audience who are not old enough to appreciate this cultural reference. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you so much, Sudenka. That was fantastic. Um, I think we could. Possibly see this as um, a, a new kind of gadget for James Bond in a in an upcoming movie at some point. I wanted to ask you a, a few questions, Zdenka. One of them was, um, why did you, why have you chosen silver? Is there a particular property of silver that makes it work particularly well as a chip?
3: Yeah, That's a good question. So I guess there's two reasons. One is because uh, experimentally, it just ended up being a, a nice metal to make nanowires out of. And the second reason is that silver is relatively biocompatible. The nanowires are also actually coated with a polymer. So that kind of makes them a bit more biocompatible as well for this particular application.
0: Oh, thanks, Zdenka. And another question, just as a follow on, I just wondered, um, in terms of the testing and, and checking how this how this might work, um, how far away do you think the team are for maybe trying this in in humans? Or what's the, you know, the roadmap to get that um, tested in people?
3: Sure. So I think in humans, we're several years away. Of course, that's, you know, a a very big challenge to to do a a first in man uh, trial. But certainly uh, we can envisage uh, doing a study in in a mouse, for example, that would be our first step towards a preclinical study to, to demonstrate proof of concept.
0: So Denka, I also wondered um, something else about your chip. So it's been designed specifically with this idea of restoring sight in mind. But is there other potential for chips of this kind if they if they behave in a different way to our traditional microchips? Could you think about other applications? Yeah,
3: of course. So actually the, the initial project that uh, involved these, these nanowire chips, if you like, is to use them for information processing. So sort of like a hardware version of artificial intelligence, because the way in which the nanowires self-organize themselves is exactly like a neural network. So it's kind of like a synthetic neural network, if you like. So instead of having neural networks in software to do AI, you could actually do neural
0: networks in hardware and do computation that way. Oh, that's fantastic. So there's so many different applications of this research, and perhaps one more just for you as a physicist. and um, does it ever surprise people that you're working on an area that perhaps you know if we talk if we talk about sight, perhaps people think this is a domain of medicine or biology, and I was wondering what's the impression you know, when people ask you what you do and you share that you're a physicist working in this space, how do people react and how do you respond?
3: yeah great question. Um, of course it's it is very difficult to explain this, but I think the the best way to uh, help people understand the power of cross-disciplinary research is through these you know success stories of the research. this is just this is just one of them and I uh, you know there are several other uh, success stories that I can point to as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it's not easy to do. It's a lot easier just to stay in your own narrow field. But at the end of the day, when you reach out and talk with other researchers in other disciplines, you learn so much more and you get so many more ideas and you you can make these breakthroughs that would otherwise be very difficult to do.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, this is why Sydney Nano and um, other multidisciplinary initiatives at the University of Sydney are so important, because it brings together people um, to tackle really challenging problems. And usually, if a problem is really tricky, um, you can't rely on people from just one discipline, you need to have that kind of mix, mixture of expertise. Now, Zdenka, just before I let you go for now, we're going to hear um, a, a little extract from a song that was composed in response to the research of your grand challenge. And this was part of Live from the Lab um, last year that was par- a partnership between Sydney University and FBI Radio and Sydney Nano Institute. So let's hear, if we can, uh, an excerpt of the song Visible to Me by Gemma Navarette, who's actually a student at Sydney Conservatorium of Music. and we're going to fade that one out now um, if that's piqued your interest you can go and listen to the whole of Gemma's track visible to me and you can find out more about Professor Zdenka Kunchik's work by looking at um, Sydney Ideas or on Sydney Nano but thanks for now Zdenka we're now going to move to our next speaker and it mm-hmm. gives me great pleasure to um, welcome Uh, Dr. Shelley Wickham to turn on her camera and microphone. Um, Shelley is a senior lecturer in the School of Chemistry and and Physics, School of Chemistry and Physics, I can't forget that one, and um, she's working on an amazing project uh, that is building autonomous programmable robots, this isn't sci-fi, it's sci-fact, that can detect disease early for treatment and prevention. So please, Shelley, um, let us hear more about your wonderful research.
4: Thanks, Alice. Um, Great. So where this grand challenge starts is with a question. And that was the question posed to surgeons. And the question was, if you could do the science fiction, if you could miniaturize yourself inside the body and see inside the body as if you were actually there yourself, how would that change the way you did your work? And what this particular heart surgeon, Professor Paul Bannon, said was that it would then be possible to detect early treatable damage to your heart when you're 25 years old, not uh, before you get properly sick, and that this could then avoid your premature death. Now, as someone who works in nanotechnology, that was a very exciting thing to hear. It gave us a goal. And what I want to talk about to you today is how we took inspiration from this idea and are developing the technology so that we might one day be able to do exactly that. And what you see on this picture here are some red blood cells in an artery and that yellow deposit that you can see there, that's early stage heart disease, way before we can currently detect it. And this is what we are working towards building nanorobots for to be able to detect and treat. So nanorobots, what might they actually look like? What features will they need? Here we started thinking about the anatomy of a nanorobot. Well, it needs to have a core to hold itself together. It needs to be able to move around the body So maybe it has some sort of legs. It needs to be able to sense its environment and detect what type of cells are there and if those cells are diseased or not and react to those things and then interact with us outside the body and maybe also interact with other nanorobots. If we think about the size of this robot, well, it needs to interact with things like those red blood cells on that last slide there, which are about 6,000 nanometers. So we need it to be significantly smaller than one of those cells maybe around 600 nanometers. And now I'm going to tell you that we're going to make this robot out of DNA origami nanostructures. But hang on a minute, DNA origami? Why am I using these words? Um, So these are the words you've probably heard of before, and I'm actually using them in the same way that you might have heard of them before. So for DNA, we mean the DNA that stores your genetic information. For origami, I mean folding paper up into cool little objects like this robot here. For nano, I mean, as Zdenka mentioned earlier, very, very small. So if you think of the human hair, that's about 100 microns. So we're working here at things about a thousand times smaller than a human hair. So I'll talk about DNA origami and what I mean by that in the context of building the nanorobot for. Here we're using DNA not for storing genetic information, but instead we're taking a more physics approach and thinking of DNA as a material you can store any information in. So it might be the genetic information that turns you into you, or it might be other types of information. For example, some scientists have actually stored Shakespeare's sonnets in a strand of DNA. What we do is store structural information in DNA. So that's instructions for the DNA to tell it how to fold up into different shapes. This is where the origami comes in. You can think of paper origami where you can take a two-dimensional piece of paper and you can fold it up into three dimensions. What we're doing here is taking one long, one-dimensional piece of DNA and folding it up, in this case, into two dimensions. Then we design these short staple DNA strands to cross-link it in place and hold it in the fixed shape. This is all nanometers in size, like this one here on the right. And when this work was first published in 2006 by a really great uh, scientist over in America, Paul Rosman, the technical term for this particular shape was the three-hole disc. So how can we use DNA origami as a technique to build nanorobots? What we need to do is fold our DNA origami into a useful shape. And for this, we take inspiration from another thing you might've played with as a kid, which is these blocks over here. And what we know is if you have this two by one block, that's very multifunctional and you can use it to build pretty much any shape that you like. And what we're building here are in these, um, these are microscope images taken on an electron microscope is a two by one block made of DNA origami. And then we're using that as a building block to build much larger and more complex structures. And this here is work by a very talented PhD student, Min, who just got his PhD literally this Monday. Now this next slide is a compendium of some of the beautiful structures we've been making with these building blocks recently here at Sydney Manor. And you can see we have a gallery there of all different shapes we can make when we get back to the size that we're thinking of each of these circles that you see is the top of half of one of those blocks and they're 30 nanometers across so that's about 20 times smaller than our final nanorobot will be or 200 times smaller than that red blood cell on the first slide so they're a great building block for making things the right size to go into the body and we've made some great three-dimensional dinosaurs here we've also made this nano australia uh, so we can really make any shapes we like, and so we have fun in the lab making some interesting shapes. Um, but we also make useful shapes that will be the core of our nanorobot. And the neat part of this is that we don't just get one of these. When we make them, we get billions of copies simultaneously forming in solutions. That's some of the science we're developing towards making more complex nanorobot cores here at City Nano using DNA origami. What about some of the other features we're interested in? How will a nanorobot sense where it's gone in the body? For this, we need to develop a mechanism for it to interact with cells. And for this, we started off by thinking about how we interact with, say, for example, our bodies in regular life. We might go to the doctor and they'll take a syringe and take a blood sample. What we're envisioning here and what we're developing is ways that we can take samples, but not of milliliters of your blood, but of individual blood cells. So if we could have a nanosyringe that could extract a small piece of information from a single cell, we could then understand if that cell was diseased or not, or we could instead inject a really small amount of a drug. In this case, we're also building these nanosyringes out of DNA origami. So you can see here, this is a barrel shaped DNA origami and inside it has a pore, which is like the needle part of your syringe. Another very talented PhD student I'm lucky to work with, Jasleen, has made this structure in a state where the pore can either be held inside or released and pushed out of the uh, barrel where it can then interact with the cell. And what we're currently doing is understanding how these uh, nanosyringes interact with lipid membranes. And those are the membranes that wrap up our cells. You can see here in this microscope image, again taken by electron microscope, a bubble in the middle. And that's a small piece of lipid membrane, which we call a liposome. And what you can see are these barrels docking onto it and also potentially some of those pores piercing into it. And what we're doing now is figuring out what molecules can get in and out of these pores. Then finally, I wanna talk about some ideas we have towards working towards how these things might move around the body. As you might think, it's very challenging to put a robot in the body because what is the battery? What is the power source? What we're trying to do is make use of the fact that we already have an energy source in the body to power these robots, and that's blood flow. Here we're thinking about how white blood cells move around the body. When they go through our bloodstream, they attach to the wall of a blood vessel, and then they roll along it until they find a site of inflammation and infection, and they stop and deal with it. I like to imagine this kind of like a molecular Roomba, those robots that can randomly search your house for dust. What we're working on is to use the same properties to design our own synthetic white blood cells that can roll around blood vessels powered by blood flow. The way that we're testing these is we're also building what is essentially a synthetic blood vessel on a microscope slide. And we're studying how these nanostructures move in blood under a microscope to understand how they might one day work inside the body. And so I'll bring you back to where we started with our vision of what all these pieces of technology will be assembled into and where they're going. That eventually, instead of having invasive surgical procedures, instead nanorobots could one day travel through our blood vessels to identify early stage heart disease and treat it way before you have any symptoms. And that could improve the health outcomes of many Australians dramatically. They could also be applied to many other hard to treat conditions such as cancer and dementia. And to finish off, I just wanted to say that there's lots of ways that people can get involved in this project particularly students who are thinking of starting university soon or PhD students, where we run this exciting student competition called Biomode, which is a way for students at all levels to do hands-on research in an international competition in this area. Our 2018 team actually inspired the work on the nanoserine sensing device that we're currently developing further in the lab. And our 2019 team here featured, uh, won the global first prize for their project, also on trying to treat heart disease. And just to say, science is a very collaborative area, and this is the wonderful team that I'm very lucky to work with and a lot of talented students who have put together the work uh, in my slides today. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Shelley. Um, it's always fantastic to see what you and your group have been up to, um, and those images of the the robots and inside, um, you know, inside the blood cell, um, really, I think, give a, a great sense of what it might be like to have the perspective of one of these nano robots. Um, I was wondering um, how important it is to you that you can design and build things that actually look like the things you can draw. So we saw with your dinosaurs, um, those structures really do look like dinosaurs. Um, and, and I wondered how how much, how something looks and how something behaves is important for your research.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of the times we ask ourselves when we need to make a nano syringe, for example, what should it look like? Should it look like a macroscale syringe or should it look completely different? and a lot of the times we have to test that experimentally to find out uh, but very often it does turn out that what we can do is look to biology because biology already makes all these really cool nanomachines they're proteins in our cells and so often what we end up doing is copying proteins we also like to you know it's a really playful area of science and we we take that challenge of well can you make anything let's make a nano australia as part of uh, part of the job and so we, we use that to show that we can really make any any device that we'd like to make
0: yeah that I think the sense of play in your team is really evident and it's lovely to see and I like the idea of plagiarizing proteins and seeing what they can do and if you can do them better with the with the, with the things that you can build I was wondering too um, how how does the body respond to um, putting um, you know new, new objects in there they might be built out of dna or rna but what does the body do when it has something like this something like a nanorobot um injected or inserted in some way
4: that's a really great question and i think the the key thing is that uh the first thing that the body does it it degrades it unfortunately so we have a challenge in stabilizing our structures so coating them in lipids coating them in a protective layer to protect them when they're in circulation. Um, And so our our first challenge is to stop them from being destroyed by the body. After that, because they are biomaterials, they can be more biocompatible than other materials compared to, say, if you think of other medical devices made of metals or things like that. But it's a really interesting question. And when you ask, is something biocompatible or not, There's lots of different ways it could be compatible with the immune system or with the blood. And the answer is for some of these systems, we don't know yet. So we're actually currently looking into with people at the Heart Research Institute into the interactions of these structures with blood and particularly for blood clotting.
0: And Shelley, so how do you see these structures? You mentioned you, sh- you showed us some fantastic images. What do you and your team do to, to look at these images and to, to create these, you know, these these visual images of what you've made?
4: Thanks. Yeah, what attracted me to this part of science is that I really need to see pictures for me to believe it. So it's very much a picture. It isn't real kind of science and. What's exciting is also seeing molecules, like those are individual molecules, they're really real. And I'm glad that you asked that question, because I can nerd out about electron microscopes for a little bit. It's basically like a light microscope, like you might have used in high school um, science. But instead of having light coming down through it, it has electrons. So basically, uh, a little filament, like you might find in a light bulb with a really high voltage on it, enough to shoot out electrons. And because electrons uh, don't travel very far in air, the whole thing is in a vacuum chamber. So it looks very dramatic and very cool. And it's about two times taller than a person. So you feel like a real fancy scientist sitting in front of it. Um, And what that means is that because electrons have an effective wavelength, much smaller than light, you can see much smaller things. So we can see individual atoms with electron microscopes, which is pretty cool.
0: I think it's very cool indeed. I think zooming in on this nanoscale, um, it really opens our eyes to what what we can build and what we can achieve on this scale. And we might just have a listen, Shelley, to the song that was composed in response to the research in your team last year as part of Live From The Lab. So if we start to cue that one in, I will introduce uh, the musician who created this track. It's Luke Davis. And this track is called The More I Think, The Bigger It Gets. Such a small thing, and it swallows me. Davis. I picked the wrong time to come in then just as it was building. Um, So that's a little bit of an extract from Luke Davis the more I think the bigger it gets created in response to the research being conducted as part of the Grand Challenge at Sydney Nano Institute that Dr. Shelley Wickham leads. So it's now time for our final speaker and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Chiara Neto who's from the School of Chemistry at the University of Sydney. She's a professor of physical chemistry and Chiara if you would like to switch on your camera and to turn on your mic we'd love to hear about the research that you're leading as part of the Grand Challenge at, at Sydney Nano Institute, the Aqua Challenge. Uh, where Chiara and her team are developing a low-cost method to capture water from the air and uh, to try and tackle some of the impacts of drought and water security. So Chiara, please take it away. We'd love to hear about Team Aqua. Thank you, Alice. And thank you, everyone, for joining
5: us today. To start with, I'd like to ask you to become aware of the air around you. I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that we need the oxygen in the air to breathe and to survive. But today, I'll ask you to also focus on something else that's in the air, and that's water. It's just this water that we'll be talking about for the next few minutes. My name is Chiara Neto. I'm Professor of Physical Chemistry, and I work on Aqua, Advanced Capture of Water from the Atmosphere. The air around us is rich in water, Quite a lot of it, in fact. To visualize how much water there is, picture one cubic meter. That is approximately the space occupied by a washing machine and a dryer together. In one cubic meter of water at 70% humidity and at 30 degrees Celsius, there's approximately one tablespoon of water. At higher temperature and higher humidity, there is more water. Imagine if we could harvest this water from the atmosphere and use it when we need it. To understand how atmospheric water capture works, think of what you, when you got your bottle of milk out of the fridge this morning. Did you notice that the outside of the bottle became wet? That's because water in the air condensed onto its cold surface, as the volume of water condensed is proportional to the area of the surface if we want to capture substantial volumes of water we need to collect water over large surface areas ideally we would like to do this in a way that is affordable sustainable and uses no energy can you imagine what problems we could solve if we could accomplish this the supply of clean water is one of the most significant global challenges of the 21st century Many of us here in Australia have seen firsthand the devastating consequences of a drought. In New South Wales in 2019, we had one of the worst droughts on record, which caused loss of livelihood, ecosystems, and the destruction of whole communities. One third of the world population lives in countries facing water scarcity. More than 1 billion people around the world are without access to an adequate supply of clean water. And if this trend continues unchecked, it is estimated that two thirds of the world's population will live in water stressed conditions by the, year 20- by the year 2025. Yet we have the means to produce small amounts of water in a delocalized fashion and the solution is all around us in the air. Here at the University of Sydney, we have designed a nanostructured surface coating that captures water from the atmosphere without any energy input. As mentioned before, we need to collect water on large surfaces, for example, on the roof of buildings. Our team has developed a surface coating that can be applied over a large area in the form of a paint. It looks like plain white paint, such as the one shown here, but it's not. It's much more than that. It is a polymer coating with a nanoscale structure designed specifically to keep the surface cool, cooler than the temperature of the air surrounding it, even when exposed to the direct sun. We have optimized the structure and chemistry of the surface so the water droplets, once condensed onto the surface, readily roll off it, allowing us to collect more water. The process of water condensation and collection is showed in the stop motion video collected in the lab at high humidity and subcooling of the surface. Because the coating is colder than the air around it, water contained in the air can condense onto the surface in the form of droplets, just like on the milk bottle. If we collect the droplets, as you s- see on the right, we have a new source of water right there. What we are doing effectively is collecting droplets of dew And dew, as you know, forms more rapidly when the humidity is high. Luckily, many areas in Australia are very humid, like in Sydney most of the year, and other areas with subtropical and tropical climate. Our nanostructured coatings allow us to collect dew not only at night time, but also during part of the day when you normally would not see dew on a common surface. The reason we can collect water also during the day is that we are using passive radiative daytime cooling. The chemical and physical properties of the surface have been designed so that when the nanostructure, when the nanostructured coating faces the sky, it remains cool even in the sun because it reflects sunlight. So it stays cool. At the same time, it radiates heat in the so-called atmospheric window on the infrared spectrum. And so it stays even colder. The atmospheric window is a range of infrared wavelength in which the atmosphere does not absorb. So the coating can dump heat directly to the cold of space. Our solution has no moving parts, requires no energy input, produces water in a delocalized fashion, exactly where you need it, and works during all the night and part of the day. Ultimately, our aim is to collect up to one liter of water per square meter of surface per day in large part of the year. To picture this in your mind, think of this. Right now, most of the houses in uh, Australia have panel, uh, solar panels on the side of the roof that faces north. In the future, the other side of your roof could be covered by water collecting coatings and you could either use the water immediately or store it in your water tank for use later. This water will supplement our existing water resources and could enable survival in remote locations, in emergency situations where water is scarce. It could be used to support wildlife and high value plants through long periods without rain. This breakthrough has been enabled by a Sydney Nano Grand Challenge project. And as part of the project, uh, a team of people have worked together. Uh, the core team uh, consists of myself, Professor Matan De Steker from the School of Physics, and recently graduated PhD student, uh, Ming Chu. We've also worked with a large number of students and academics from across the faculties and disciplines in the University of Sydney. Industry and investors are very keen on this technology and this project has really taken on a life of its own. Recently, a venture capitalist has offered to help us spin and start a company which will grow the scientific idea into a product. Atmospheric water capture has the potential to help us survive the challenges ahead of us, but it's just one component of a new consciousness that we need to develop and strengthen, which involves consuming less, Cherishing our finite resources and taking better care of our environment for the future generations. As you will hear shortly in Nadine's song Nano Steps, inspired by the Aqua Project, every single atom inside every single drop is what makes a tide. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Chiara. I always love hearing about your research. I wanted to to talk a little bit more about this pigment, this coating, or this coating, rather. My question was about pigments. Um, Is the coating mixed with anything else? Is, you know, what gives it this color? Is there any other material that's part of this coating as well as your, you know, your new nanotechnology?
5: Yeah, so a really crucial part of the materials design is that we could not have any pigments in the formulation because pigments absorb UV light. So the standard paint that's on your walls is white, mostly because it contains titanium nanoparticles and they give it opacity and scatter the light. We are able to scatter the light through these nanoscale voids that we've created within the paint structure and they obviously uh, do what we need, which is they reflect the light, the sunlight, and do not absorb uh, any of it or very, very little of it. And the material that the polymer or the polymer that we made the coatings of is ideally suited to emit in the right IR wavelength. So the design is really part of the success of the material.
0: Yeah, no, I I was wondering about that. I also wanted to to ask you in terms of, could you add other materials or other layers of material on on top of your coating? So for example, if you wanted to minimize uh, bacteria in the water or other sort of pollutants from the atmosphere, is there a potential to add more layers to your already wonderful um, research?
5: Yes, so already we have a design that involves several layers Um, The the main feature that we're really focused on is uh, the first aspect that I mentioned, the condensation, but also the roll off. So the the main coating that we apply is a coating that makes it easy for droplets to roll off the surface once they've condensed. And really, we want them to come off at the smallest possible volume so that the, the efficiency of our collection is higher in the future. Of course, it would be nice to add functionality, the type of things that people would be attracted by, uh, for example, color. Um, So being able to paint your roof, whatever color you want. Unfortunately, that will lead to a decrease in the efficiency. So for now we have to stick with the white if we wanna collect water. Um, The other thing that uh, people have asked us a lot about is can we make this coating transparent? So for example, it could be applied to the roof of, um greenhouses uh there is possibility that that could work but it would be a a very different uh, material design and so that's something that we might explore in the future
0: Thanks, Kiara. I think for some of those benefits, um, I'd be happy to go with a white coating um, on on my um, house um, to try and capture water in this way. We're not going to play your song just now, Kiara, because I think we might play people out with Nardine's video. Um, And I'd like to welcome Zdenka and Shelley to come back and to see if we can start to answer some of the questions that are coming up on Slido. Um, Zdenka, the first one I think is is for you. Uh, An anonymous person asks, um, would could it be possible to use nanowires um, to correct um, other forms of to correct other things for, for vision so to refer, to rephrase this could nanowires be implanted to straighten up eye d- deformation or other complications to improve vision?
3: Yeah, great question. So it really depends on what's causing the dysfunction in the eye. So, for example, if there was dysfunction due to uh, damage to other types of neuron cells like the photoreceptor cells, which convert light into electrical signals. You couldn't use this for that. So it's really quite specific to the layer, a particular layer of cells in the retina. And the retina has multiple layers of different types of neuronal cells. So so we're really focusing on the layer of retinal neuronal cells that uh, can receive electrical signals from the photoreceptor cells and then send that through via the optic nerve to the, uh, to the visual
0: cortex. So it's quite, quite specific to that with the functionality. Thanks, Sdenka. It was a great question and a lovely answer. We might go to Shelley next. I can see a, a question for Shelley. Um, could you please um, speak to other applications that you mentioned for this technology, um, such as cancer or dementia? Could you share a little bit more uh, about that for us?
4: Thanks. I'm really glad somebody asked this question because I just didn't have time to really talk about that. Um, I promise I didn't ask anyone to ask it. Um, so when we have cancer, for example, or some a lot of neurological conditions, we have quite good drugs for those conditions. Um, the problem is the side effects of the drugs. So the side effects of chemotherapy or the side, side effects of some drugs we use to treat. For example, Parkinson's and other um, neurological diseases. And what these nanorobots could potentially do is only deliver those drugs to specific places in the body. And so you could use the active drugs and maybe you could even use some drugs we can't currently use because the side effects are too high um, by reducing side effects by only putting them exactly where they need to be.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So a delivery system for some of these medicines. And um, we might pop to Kiara now. And um, We've got another question here, which I think is, is a, a great one. So um, somebody's really interested in your water capture technology, but wants to know, are your team conducting climate modelling? Are there any unknown effects on the climate that occur- occurs from harvesting water from the atmosphere in this way?
5: Yes, so we have as part of our team, a hydrologist, Willem Bevoort, and his project is all focused about exploring the effects of microclimate on collecting locally uh, atmospheric water. I would say we don't have enough results to make a statement on that yet. Uh, My own expectation would be that in the way that the envisage is to work at the moment, which is, you know, on people's houses or maybe on the roofs of large buildings, it wouldn't have a a large scale effect. But obviously, if this became really um, uh, well spread everywhere, then that effect on the microclimate would need to be explored. And, uh, you know, we would need to adapt to uh, what the results of those studies are.
0: Thanks, Kiara. Um, And I'm going to come back to Shelly now. So um, somebody who's really impressed by the nanorobots, um, but they'd like to know how will they be recovered from the body or with the biocoatings that you mentioned, Shelly, will they just stay in the body?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And that comes back to what I mentioned is that when we're making these, we're making billions of them. Um, So each individual nanorobot, it's not particularly precious. We don't have to retrieve it from the body afterwards. Um, But what will happen is even with our best coatings that we currently have, they would probably stay active in the body for maybe 24 to 48 hours. So what we imagine is this could be something uh, the same way that you might get a, um, a contrast agent for a CT scan or some other medical imaging. It would be something that could be in your body for a short time and then it degrades and it gets excreted through the kidneys and then it's
0: gone from your body, but it's fallen apart. So we don't We wouldn't try and recover them. Thanks Shelley Um, and I'll go to Zdenka. Um, Somebody would really like to know Zdenka, if a person was blind in theory using the the technology that your team are trying to to, to design and develop, um, would you think that their site could be fully restored?
3: So the short answer is yes but with the qualification that only if, it were, if the blind was due, was due to this particular type of neurodegenerative disease like macular degeneration or retina pigmentosa. So again, um, in relation this kind of relates back to the first question that there's lots of different parts of the eye that could be damaged. Um, if that damage it occurs to a particular type of retinal neural, neuronal cell, these are called retinal ganglion cells then that's what our technology has actually uh, been developed for. And so in principle, blindness due to these particular types of uh, neurodegenerative diseases uh, could be uh, um, uh, cured.
0: Thanks Zdenka. So I think we'll, we'll finish on one last question and this one is probably for Zdenka or Shelley. You probably can both have a go answering this. If you can give us a quick answer. Um, we Uh, A question we'd like to know, will we live long enough to see medical applications of nanotechnology extend our healthy lifespans indefinitely into the future? So maybe I'll go to Shelly first. (laughs) That's a a difficult question. I mean,
4: indefinitely is a really long time. (laughs) I think in our lifetimes, we will see particularly nanotech applications to drug delivery affecting people in our lifetimes. certainly helping you know that's my that's where I see it going if I try and look into the future indefinitely I don't think so Um.
0: what about Zdenka any addition there
3: yeah sure so in separate research that I'm working on I'm already working on nanoparticles that are clinically approved for detecting cancer, so really early detection of tumour cells. And as we know, early detection is key to extending the lifetime of of people. Um, Now, of course, extending it indefinitely is impossible. Um, You know, we can't can't live forever, but uh, instead of becoming immortal, we might become mortal, where, you know, we can kind of prevent some of these diseases and end up, you know, being run over by a bus instead or something like that
0: well um let's let's focus on the immortal part let's i think that's a good point to end this evening if you want to hear more about the research that our fantastic uh, colleagues, Professor Nito, Dr. Wickham, and Professor Kunjik are, uh, are performing here at the University of Sydney, please um, head over to the Sydney Ideas website. Uh, this recording will be up as a podcast. I think it remains as the thunder and lightning rolls in here in Sydney, just for me to, to extend a very warm thanks to all of you for joining us this evening and to thank um, uh, the people who uh, who helped to organise this in Sydney Ideas. Sydney Ideas is the public talks program for the University of Sydney. There's a fantastic range of public talks that are on year round so please do join us either online or in person as we're able to and we will we'll look forward to um, seeing you at future events. We're going to finish this evening by playing you out with the track by Nardine Nano Steps that was composed in response to Chiara's research in the Aqua team and uh, all that remains to say is thank you very much um, I've been Alice Motion and it's been lovely to uh, join you all this evening. Thanks so much. For listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.